life can be tricky, making us ask, what was that? Join host Jan Murray and her guests as they explore the that's of life. Welcome to Life After That. everyone. I'm Jan Murray. Welcome to another episode of Life After That. Today, we're welcoming Denise Allen. She is from Gaston, Oregon, and she's going to talk about her life with her wife, Mary DeWitt, who was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis in December 2013 and passed away in October of 2015, and they had been married since June 2004. Welcome, Denise. Hi, Jan. How are you? I'm good. So, Denise, I know it's still probably hard to talk about some of this, as it is for all of us that came from the ALS world, but give us a little background on you and Mary, maybe uh, how things were right before diagnosis, what led to diagnosis? Okay. Um, well, uh, we had, I, we, I had bought this house out here in rural Gaston, Um middle of 2012 and we moved out here and we found out that um, everything, our whole hillside was uh, forested and we found out that the fir trees were a little dangerous and so they needed to go. They were too tall, too close to the house um, and had some cracks in them that were dangerous. So we had that scheduled to go um, and then the logging happened during the summer of 2013 and uh, one of the trees, unfortunately, hit a power line and tripped back to the transformer. And the transformer blew up. Oh, and Mary was standing there with her phone calling 911. And when it blew up, she realized she couldn't run to get away from the transformer. And I think that was that was the last straw. She had been seeing a neurologist for probably eight or 10 months before that, because there just were some weird things going on. Mm -hmm. And at the time she thought her mother had died of multiple sclerosis. So they were testing her for that. Um, but after, after that transformer blew and she couldn't run, she went back again. And with that information, and that's when they started running, you know, the respiratory testing and uh, needle EMGs and things like that. Yeah. Yes. And so it took a couple of, and I didn't go to those appointments with her. Um, she didn't always tell me what was going on back then. Um, she had one round of uh, the breathing te pulmonary uh, function tests mm -hmm. and a couple months later they did another one and there was a significant decrease and that's when they sent her for the first emg and a month later a second emg and uh when our pcp got those results on a friday night in december um she called us and said i'm so sorry it's als and i had been in that second emg appointment and i was watching the screen and uh -huh. I, I already knew um 
But my my response to her was, did he say ALS or did he say motor neuron disease? Because I knew there were some non-fatal motor neuron diseases. I'd been right. doing research. And her response was, it's ALS. Um, and that was kind of it um, from the PCP. And Mary and I sat there on a Friday and looking at each other. Just that's the phone call. I'm sorry, it's ALS. You were punched in the gut. You couldn't breathe, I'm sure. Yeah. So uh took about a month to get into the ALS clinic at Providence Portland and have their neurologist do um some more testing, including a lot of blood work to rule out, of course, Lyme disease. Um we they, went through that spinal puncture to yeah. rule out MS. And um, that's when they confirmed the diagnosis. So they immediately put her on a BiPAP. Um, Was hers bulbar onset ALS or no? No, we believe it was respiratory onset. Okay. Did she ever lose her voice or just the breathing? She never lost her voice until she was trained. Okay. That's right. I remember reading that in support group that she yeah. was trached. So yeah. how long was it from diagnosis till that time that she had to be trached? Fifteen months. She was trached in February of 2015. So she, hers progressed though really fast though, right? Very fast. Because bulbar yeah. usually goes fast, but if she's just mostly yeah. respiratory, so I guess anything up here... Up, up high above the chest and up I guess that type just goes a lot faster than limb onset it was hard I mean it's hard they labeled as respiratory onset she had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia back in 1996 and so she'd been walking with a cane already okay um, because of that and had pain because of that and so it may have masked some of the earlier symptoms. If she had dropped foot, we wouldn't have noticed it. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to say, but I remember the first ALS clinic, they they ordered the BiPAP machine uh, for her to have the breathing support, especially at night. And then they scheduled her to be fitted with um, some braces so she could walk. Mm -hmm. And by the time we got to the appointment for the braces three weeks later they decided to measure her for a wheelchair she had progressed that quickly wow. and by april she was almost full-time in a power wheelchair wow that had but to be hard to deal with such quick progression like that yeah it was it was very challenging especially living out in a rural area yeah yeah my um when my when my bill was diagnosed um we went through the whole Lyme disease thing too and um his was limb onset in that his he cut where he couldn't like open packages of crackers and all of that and he was losing his balance but he he was having problems for over a year before he ever told me anything about what was going on but I remember the first neurologist he did an EMG but he didn't have him engage his muscles which you're supposed to Right. And he said, this isn't ALS. This is something else. But he sent him to an, uh, a neurosurgeon to do a neck surgery. Yeah. And when we were walking out of the exam room at that neurosurgeon's office, after setting up the surgery for the discectomy, he called us back. He said, something's wrong with your gait. You're walking 
odd. I had never noticed it either, but that clued him in. He said, I'm going to fix your neck, but I'm pretty sure something else is going on here. Mm -hmm. And um, they have said they wanted to do carpal tunnel surgery on both hands too. Well, mm, we had the neck surgery and actually he got better from the surgery, but other things got worse. Of course. And uh, that's when I got on the phone and got an appointment at Vanderbilt ALS clinic. And uh, because that's where his older brother went and that's, I wanted to go somewhere where somebody had seen the brother because already in our head, we were thinking, Oh, I hope not. But we also knew it was a possibility. Yeah. And they did the EMG engaging the muscles. And, you know, people don't know what an EMG is. They stick like needles, probes, all yep. parts of the body, and they shoot electricity through. Yep. It is not a pleasant experience. No. And at Vanderbilt, I never will forget when they put that needle up through the bottom of his chin, up into that part of his tongue that way. That was so painful. And then shot electricity through there. Yeah. Because Bill's voice was already, uh, I say tangling. It was uh, getting thicker and weird. So yeah. even even though he lived seven and a half years, he stopped walking in under two and his voice was going in under two. So we had rapid progression of a couple of things, but yet he still was able to live. But he, he would have died three and a half years sooner than he did had he not gotten a feeding tube. The feeding tube kept him alive a little longer. He didn't want to trade, but he did try the, uh, the feeding tube and I would have lost him sooner than I did. So I'm glad he actually got the feeding tube. But yeah. anyway, I get back to your story. Yeah. Um, so after your diagnosis, but what what happened at home? What was your daily life like? I want people to understand when this happens, how it, how things shift, the dynamics in the relationships shifts and the dynamics of how your home operates shifts. Can you tell us how that was in your home? Yeah, so it had already started shifting before the diagnosis. Um, because like I said, we thought it was the fibromyalgia. She was getting weaker. Um, I remember we had taken a drive. We drove from Oregon down to California for my son's graduation. And, uh, we were supposed to take turns driving. I ended up doing all the driving and she complained the whole way <laughs> that I was making her neck hurt. Oh, and it turned out, of course, the first DMG showed also some, some atrophy in her neck. Um, and then I remember making Thanksgiving dinner uh, and she didn't need a bite. And I was so angry. I get it. But the respiratory onset, that CO2 buildup that she was experienced just made her appetite completely disappear. Mm -hmm. She was, she had already lost so much weight um, yeah. when she was diagnosed. So so there had already been a lot of changes um, because of her disability. She had been um, the homemaker while I worked full time. So, um, you know, suddenly I was doing, I was cleaning this huge house out in the middle of nowhere, trying to cook for her when I got home from work. Um, we did get referral pretty quickly uh, through the social worker for um, the state program we were able, she had fortunately already gotten on SSI with the fibromyalgia and she was already on Medicaid with the fibromyalgia, thankfully. So that was a fairly easy transition um, and Medicaid covered home health. So we were able to get um, 
home health agency that was willing to come out here and willing to work with the BiPAP, which is the other challenge. Yeah. Uh, we're lucky that Oregon allows for uh, nurse delegation for equipment. Uh, otherwise, we would have had a hard time. Mm-hmm. So um, they came and interviewed us. And all Mary kept saying was, I want Denise to be able to keep working. I want because she didn't want them to know we were married. She didn't want them to know <laughs> we were together. I had to set this is part of the FTD, I think. Oh, that's right. She had frontotemporal lobe dementia. Yeah. That's what that stands for, isn't it? Yeah. Right. And but she wasn't diagnosed till much later. Looking back, I can see it probably started at least two years before her diagnosis. Okay. Before she noticed physical symptoms. But she had me set up the front guest room here to make it look like that's where she lived. Uh-huh. Um, and so we had her clothes hanging in the closet, some of them anyway. And you know, the bed was made and rumbled and, you know, whatever, when this, when they came to visit. Yeah. Um, so she made it sound like we were just roommates um, because she wanted to make sure we got the services. And um, she was immediately approved for the maximum amount, which was 15 hours a day, seven days a week. Wow. So that's how fast things had already progressed. Um Fortunately, it did allow me to continue working or we would have both been on the street, to be honest with you. Well, mentally, what was that doing to you? I mean, your whole life was flipped upside down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, We got married uh, just before my 40th birthday. Oh. And uh, she was six years older than me. Um. This is the first person I really, truly, truly loved. And uh, we thought we had a long time. You know, we used to talk about what we would do when I retired and, you know, how we would sit on the lawn, smoking pot, (laughs) scaring off any missionaries that showed up. Um, And picking kiwis. (laughs) And picking kiwis. And, and running running a retreat center for for artists and and I mean we had great plans for this property um so yeah all of those dreams were dashed immediately I uh, again thankfully she was on SSI and disability um and Medicaid because we weren't legally married therefore it didn't impact my insurance coverage it didn't Everything was covered there. I, I never saw a bill for a single penny from her care mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, Oregon yeah. was yeah. covering all of it because I don't know what would have happened financially to me. Yeah, there's um, nothing like that in Alabama. I can tell you right now. Yeah, most states there's not. Yeah. Um, and if we'd been married, it would have been a totally different story if we'd been legally married. Yeah, because then your income would come into play and yes. all of that. Yeah. yeah. And um, so... It did allow me to continue to work, which was its own challenging, you know, meaning I, you know, sometimes the caregivers were new and I would have to be longer (laughs) and go in later to work. Um, Some, there were some that didn't work out and I had to literally send home and then call the agency and said, don't ever send them back. I would come from home from work sometimes and she would tell me a caregiver had been trying to convert her to whatever religion or that a caregiver was pinching her. Pinching? Pinching her. I don't know if that was actually true or not. Wow. 
Um, but I did see a time when a, an actually home health nurse came in to see her and put her purse down right in front of the intake for the BiPAP. Oh, no. <laughs> and the alarm started going off. Of course. She went ballistic. Mary went ballistic. I went ballistic. The visit before that, when I wasn't home, the same nurse had leaned over Mary and hit her, um, the motorized wheelchair control and had Mary spinning in circles as the BiPAP hose is trying to keep up with her and stopped and looked at Mary and said, did I do that? And oh, the dear. caregiver is like, yes, you did. So there was a lot of struggle because it was the only agency that would come out here and not all of the employees were knowledgeable. For... That's what I was going to say. There's a huge learning curve yeah. to operate one of those wheelchairs. I've spun my own husband, ran him into many walls when I was yeah. learning to operate. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, and, I ran and got and got yelled and... at when he still had a voice because I accidentally crushed part of his leg between the wall and the chair, but I didn't mean to. I mean, there is a huge learning curve Yes, uh, with all of that. And uh, BiPAPs, people that are listening that may not be ALS, a BiPAP is like an external ventilator, basically. Yes. It helps expel carbon dioxide from a, a patient's lungs because ALS uh, uh, people lose that capacity, that ability to push that carbon dioxide back out. So the BiPAP is an external trach. They don't have to have a hole in their throat for that. It's right. kind of like you see people sleep with a CPAP. A BiPAP is similar, but it works a little differently. It works um, both ways with yeah, it works, yeah. intake and out breath. Yeah. Right. It's not just providing positive air pressure. It's in, in and out. Yes. We, we had that as well, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I have a visual now of Mary spinning. <laughs> With the BiPAP hose. And what we haven't mentioned here is she was a redheaded Irishman. Oh, wow. And so she was from the UK or Ireland or somewhere. Well, she had lived for, in the UK for a while, but she, she, uh, yeah. So she had the redheaded temper in response to things like that, <laughs> um, which could get really funny sometimes. Well, now we I can't help but laugh. I, it wasn't sometimes funny then, but it's funny now. Mary. Yeah, scary Mary. <laughs> and she's yeah. laughing wherever she is right now. <laughs> oh, she is. We were lucky. We had one caregiver, Morgan. Um, bless Morgan Lepsey, I will say her name. She okay. had worked with a, another ALS patient prior to Mary. She was probably 19 years old when she came to us, but they hit it off. Morgan was, I don't know what we would have done without her. She was here three, four days a week. She did overnight so I could get a full night's sleep. What a because, blessing. Because when they left at 11 and didn't come back till seven, you know how those nights go when you're constantly being awakened because you have to adjust pillows, yeah. your head's flopped over, um, the BiPAP's beeping, it's out yep. of water. Um, and so I would get very exhausted and try to go. I, I almost got written up at work, actually, because... I was so exhausted that my temper was short. And so um, I managed to, to work with my supervisor about that and get out of that. But, you know, that was a time when working from home wasn't really. Right. It wasn't a option. thing, really. Yeah. It wasn't really an option even. And right. so I had to drive half an hour to the office. And uh, when Morgan was here, I knew nothing would go wrong. 
And when anybody else was here, it was constantly waiting for the phone to ring. Right. And, uh, there were often phone calls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had um, stopped. To, I was teaching at a private school when everything started going down and I wound up I knew I had to go home because he wasn't walking well. He already was losing his voice. So we were both unemployed very, very quickly. Yeah. And if it were not for the graciousness of really churches, individuals, people, I didn't even know. I don't know how we would have made it because it took a little bit to get the social security started and all of that. Yeah. And, um, but the caretaking part, I did wind up taking a job as a marketing director and my boss allowed me to work from home. I would go to the office once a week and someone would come in and sit with Bill. Um, eventually, we found um, a lady that had experience, great references, everything. She came in. We really liked her, super comfortable with her. Um, he, you know, she made blankets for him. She cooked. She was really great. I had no qualms about leaving her with my husband. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a mistake. I had to go do a national convention in Nashville. By the time I got up there and worked my first day, I then got a call from my daughter. She got home from college and said, um, dad's been at home alone all day. He's in his hospital bed. Uh, you know, nobody had toileted him all day. So it was a mess. Uh, and then oh. here she is. What do I do? I'm like, so where's so-and-so? I don't even remember the lady's name. I don't want to remember her name. Yeah. Because there's nobody here, mom. She abandoned my husband. I'm wow. seven and a half hours away. Um, I called the ALS Association, our our patient rep. She sent someone over. I called hospice. They sent someone over. Uh, so there was an entire nursing team there by the time I arrived nine, 10 hours later, because I had to make all kinds of arrangements so I could drive back home. So, yeah, that caretaking thing is serious business. First of all, it's hard to find someone that knows what they're doing. And if they don't, it's hard to find someone who's willing to let you teach them. And then and, you have and this then can retain it. If they can but retain meds, it. Mm -hmm. Meds were a big issue. Yeah. yeah. And you got to trust them. And it's so hard to trust someone with the person that you love more than anything. Yeah. So I get that. That's, yeah, that's scary. And did y'all have to have, was she able still to walk? Did you have to use Hoyer lifts or? What was that situation? Oh, yeah, by then. So I'll, I'll go back a little bit in time. And, and so a couple, few weeks after the, the first ALS visit with the ALS doctor, um, I, I had been at work. She was home alone. We had her set up with a walker um, that she could, you know, go back and forth to the bathroom with. Actually, this is after she got the BiPAP. So it must have been the end of January 2014. So we didn't have in-home care yet. She was using the walker. I would I would set her up on the couch. I would make a lunch for her. So all she had to do was go back and forth to the bathroom. Otherwise, she had everything there that she needed. And um, just as I left work, as usual, I called her as soon as I left work at 5 o'clock. And she said, so, and I went, what? She said, well, I didn't want to interrupt you at work. So again, this is the FTD thing, right? Uh -huh. The frontal mm -hmm. te temporal dementia. I didn't want to interrupt you at work. I said, what happened? She said, well, I was on my way to the bathroom or I went to the bathroom and 
she went to the bathroom in the master bedroom, which is at the other end of the house. She should probably have gone to the closer one, but it's okay. <laughs> so she, she had gone to the bathroom um, with her walker, but had left the BiPAP in the living room and um, got off the toilet and fell and couldn't get back up. And she was by herself. And that was probably at about two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, she couldn't get herself back up. It took her an hour to scoot on her butt. I would say 10 feet. Mm-hmm. With, uh, with a cane that she kept in the bathroom. And with the cane, she hooked her fanny pack from the top of the dresser. Oh my gosh. And in there was an old cell phone for some reason she had an old cell phone she had just upgraded it and so she was able to yank it down from the dresser with her cane pulled it out and called 911 wow the whole you know we joked about it later i've fallen and i can't get up yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) right she got a life alert after that but um so the paranoia also from the dementia also meant that if I, if she was here alone, she locked all the doors. So of course the sheriff shows up, the paramedics show up, the fire department shows up, paramedics and fire department out here are volunteer. Um, they're great. They're fabulous, mm-hmm. but they all show up and the doors are locked. They can't get in. And by this time she can barely breathe because she had left her bypass the in the other room. room. Yeah. And so she just said, all she could do was try to yell, kick it in, kick it in. So sure enough, the sheriff kicked in the door um, and they were able to get her up back on the couch with the BiPAP and wait until her vitals were stabilized. And then she still waited until five o'clock to call me. (laughs) So yeah, so I got home at six o'clock, had to call a neighbor because then the door wouldn't lock because they had busted the door. So I had him come over and put a metal plate on the door and new lock and uh, probably nine o'clock at night, he was working on that. Then I had him build a ramp because there's a single step right there at that back door. And I knew I could see that coming. Um, And then the neighbors, I had to go to a convention the following weekend, just here in Portland, but I was gone all day. I would just drive back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had this neighbor's wife came over and stayed with Mary. And um, for some reason, Mary got up from the couch with her cane instead of the walker and got halfway through the kitchen and fell, but caught herself on the railing of the the banister of the stairs. Mm -hmm. And the neighbor's wife was able to help slowly guide her down to the floor rather than having her fall mm-hmm. so that was a good thing um but yeah then we got the Hoyer lift and that was a whole new world that's a whole nother learning curve and it was I, a manual one ah uh, we did we had a manual one too I never and mastered it I, I never did my 15 year old daughter mastered it not me it was um thankfully we never had to use it to pick her up off the floor um but, well, we did with Bill, but it's because I accidentally flipped him out of the Hoyer trying to put him in bed. He yeah. just came right out of that sling. I yeah. jumped across and tried to grab him. And I actually caught it. It wound up being a soft landing onto the concrete tile. But 
I was terrified of the thing after that. So my yeah. daughter was wonderful. So she's the one that helped me put him to bed every night. I, I literally couldn't do the Hoyer anymore. I couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't, we used the Hoyer then for transfers in and mm -hmm. out of bed, in and out of the wheelchair, um, for sanitary care. Mm -hmm. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't get her in or out of bed by myself because between the BiPAP and her weak neck and the dead weight, there was no way. Yeah. People don't months. realize that, 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 that they, they literally are dead weight at some point. And it's bill kept 210 pounds the whole time, which yeah. is one of the reasons the nursing home became necessary. Right. I, I, literally couldn't do it anymore my health was truly suffering my doctor was like this is going to kill you too I'm like yeah I know what am I supposed to do about it <laughs> yeah so because one person had to be in charge of of the breathing tube to the BiPAP to right make sure that it didn't disconnect because the alarm didn't always go off you know I I I, I have maybe you probably have seen um I have a website, love always wins. It's W I N Z.net. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing of that to mm -hmm. tell our story and also to share stories of other people and their spouses and loved ones. Um, so in there, I write about, you know, the first time Mary almost died, the second time she almost died, the third time she almost died. I lost count and I bet you did too. <laughs> I did. And yep. um, just that alone is tra was traumatizing for both of us. And she became she she got to the point where she flat out refused to leave the house for a doctor's appointment even just refused because there had been so many times she'd been injured by the transport driver or something had gone wrong with the BiPAP and it didn't alarm and we didn't catch it until she was turning blue and yeah. things like that that um yeah that that very traumatic for, for both of us in my book, and then I think I addressed it in my two episodes of this podcast, It things change literally every day. Mm -hmm. And unless you live in our world, you don't really understand that. But we're talking drastic changes. There, they may be mild changes when other people look. But no, no. One little change changes everything again. And I, I mean, okay, so Bill... Bill's always been, was always a funny guy. Everything, he could make anybody laugh on any day of the week. And he Man did until too. he died. He, yeah, he was just a character. And uh, during that first couple of years when things were really, I mean, the walking went away, the voice went away, the ability to eat without choking every single day went away. And um, I found a show that I thought he would like. It was super funny. Um, we were watching it and he started laughing and laughing and laughing and we were having the best time. And then he choked. Yep. And I wrote in my book, you know, when well, we can't even be happy and laugh anymore because apparently laughing will kill us. And, uh, it, it nearly did. I, I almost had to call 911 because it was so horrible and that was a daily thing. And so what I'm hearing from you is, it's the same thing. You just have all these changes and all this little stuff just keeps happening and it piles up and it's traumatic for you. It was traumatic for Mary. And so tell me, um, did she eventually get a trait though? The she did. Yes. Yeah. So, so how did you wind up doing that? So she, um, like I said, was on the BiPAP 
initially just, you know, at night and as needed, but pretty quickly became 24 seven. Uh, we eventually maxed out the settings on the BiPAP and switched to Trilogy, which has- Yeah, we had one of those, we had Trilogy. You'll have to explain in a minute BiPAP. what that is. Yeah. Yeah, Trilogy is a more advanced device than, than a BiPAP that looks a lot like a CPAP machine. And the Trilogy can be used for either external or internal ventilation. So the mm -hmm. settings are much more adjustable, programmable, um, and, and it's a little more complicated also mm -hmm. because of where we live, we were able to get one that was unlocked so I could adjust settings as needed or by talking to the pulmonologist on the phone. Well, that's because we couldn't, we had to get somebody to do it for us. Yeah, so, so you live somewhere unusual. where you could do it. Yeah. Um, so I learned, I learned a lot about a lot of different medical devices, about medications, about so she got her feeding tube in April of 2014. She didn't quite need it yet, but her breathing was so bad that they thought if they waited, she would not make it unless they tricked her. And the whole time she would not decide whether she wanted to be tricked or not. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't make any end of life decisions. She wouldn't, um, didn't want to talk about it if I started talking about it or I started crying and she would start crying, she would choke. She couldn't breathe. She couldn't catch her breath. So I couldn't even cry Yeah, for the last probably year and a half. Yeah. Almost, almost the whole time. I couldn't cry around her. Um, couldn't get her upset about anything. She couldn't laugh too hard either. Her laugh basically became just a grin. Um, yeah, so the feeding tube at first we just used, you know, just kept it flushed um, and gradually moved to using it for meds. And then, of course, she was no longer able to swallow without choking because the BiPAP interfered with her ability to swallow the food. Right. And she couldn't be off the BiPAP long enough to swallow. Yeah. Um, so she still could drink out of a straw. She did that up until she was trached. Um, she loved her chai. I was the only one that could make it right. Um, <laughs> I tried to teach the caregivers. Morgan was the only one who could get it right. Otherwise, <laughs> she would make faces. Um, but it was probably, it was around January of 2015 that we got a notice from the home health care agency that they were going to discontinue her contract. What? And no longer provide services. So I'm scrambling, trying to find another agency. Meanwhile, she makes three trips to the emergency room for deep suctioning. Deep suctioning is to get mucus plugs out of the right. trachea and the lungs. Right. Because it was making her unable to breathe even with the BiPAP. Mm -hmm. Um. So as I'm trying to find an agency that'll come provide support, we end up after the third time at the ER on the phone with the ALS clinic and the pulmonologist and telling her it's time to make a decision. And um, she chose in that moment to be traked and they made the arrangements right away. That same, within two hours, she was in the ambulance for an hour long ride to Providence Portland ER to be traked 
uh, the following day. Um, they, of course, by that time, she also had developed pneumonia. Oh, dear. So one of those lovely caregiver stories was, you know, one of the last people they sent showed up sick. Oh, dear. With a cold. And um, I sent him home, of course, but too late. And whatever it was, she ended up getting pneumonia. So they're doing chest x-rays in the ER while I and I had stepped out of the room to talk to somebody. And I come back in and the x-ray technician has her pulled up without her neck brace and her head's like this. Oh my goodness. And and she had bone spurs in her the back of her neck. And so it could easily have broken her neck. Yes. I said, you cannot lift, you have to slide it under her. You cannot lift her up. And, you know, the whole drama of that, by the time we got her into a room, it was well after midnight. I hadn't eaten since probably 10 a.m. Um, one of the women from the Facebook support group, uh, who's local to me here, brought me food at, at the hospital because the hospital cafeteria, of course, was closed back by that time. Um, and we just uh, tried to get settled and... Uh, I just was doing my best to remember her voice for the last time. Yeah, I don't remember my Bill's voice, so I totally get that. Yeah. So, and it was getting weak by then, but um, the next morning, Morgan showed up, not oh. on her shift, just showed up to be there with us. Um, she was in it with us in, with us in the, the, the or prep room with Mary, and um, when she left, I just told Mary, just tell me that you love me one more time. And she whispered it in my ear. And that was the last time I heard her speak. Oh, and no, that was went, so hard. She went in for the trach surgery. She did really well. Um, I met her up in ICU once because they always take you to ICU when you have trach surgery for the first right. at least 24 hours. And um, went up to be with her. She was really out of it uh, for a long time. And then she was in a lot of pain, a lot of anxiety. Her blood pressure was through the roof. And mm -hmm. so I, they didn't want me in there, but they allowed me to sleep in her room with her in ICU overnight. Um, the head nurse on the night shift just kept it quiet. Uh, unfortunately shift change happened in the next uh duty yeah. and, and I got yelled at but um but I was able to stay there because they couldn't communicate with her she was right. completely paralyzed and right. now she had no voice um so I became her interpreter for her last yeah I always had to be with life. Bill in every hospitalization because he had his little chart but normally they were too busy to let him spend an hour to spell a sentence yeah where i could read his face and pretty much knew exactly what he was needing i mean we'd been together well over you know we'd been together 30 years i could look at him i, I knew what he wanted or what he thought so i get that and so yeah. you really become the most important person in the room other than the patient and she couldn't use an eye gaze device because yeah, bill couldn't either her astigmatism was so bad same with my husband so I had to read her lips mm -hmm. and after she was trached um, and in a regular room and I finally went home after, well, I brought her home after two weeks of staying in the hospital that lasted not quite two weeks. 
And I, one of, one of the social workers from the ALS Association came out to see us and took one look at me and pulled me in the other room and said, you can't do this because I still hadn't been able to get home health care. Oh. And so I was trying to take care of her by myself. She would not let me change um, her trach tube unless oh. there was someone else here because she was afraid something would go wrong and I couldn't get to the phone to call 911 fast enough. And mm-hmm. so I had to either have one of my employees here who was bringing food or um, a neighbor up the hill who happened to be a respiratory therapist. If she wasn't working, she would come down mm-hmm. and stand there while I was doing it so that Mary would let me change it because you don't, or especially early on, it can become infected very easily. Yes. Um, but I wasn't sleeping. It, she was, her anxiety was incredible because she couldn't feel that she was breathing anymore. What people don't realize is that when you are trached and the air is going in and out through your trachea, you lose the sensation of breathing because the sensation of breathing comes from the air moving across our tongue in the back of our throat. Mm-hmm. And through our nose. Our yeah. mm-hmm. And so she was constantly thinking she wasn't breathing and that she was dead. And I could not get enough anxiety meds in her. And then, you know, they took out the catheter when they sent her home and she was completely incontinent for the rest of her life after that. Mm. So trying to lift her and clean her and change the sheets by myself, not sleeping, not working in panic mode now because, you know, sick leaves running low. Um, I caught the social worker looked at me and said, um, let's get her back into the hospital for placement. And so after two weeks at home, she was back on an ambulance going an hour back to Providence, Portland again, getting admitted through the ER. She, she did have a UTI. Mm-hmm. The ER doctor wanted to send us home and I broke into tears and said, I can't do it. We need to admit her for placement. Um, So she's back upstairs again in the same room she had been two weeks before that with the same nursing crew that already knew her. Um, And that's where she spent the rest of her life. How long did she live after that? Let's see. She went back in the hospital in March and it was October. Seven months. Wow. With me driving an hour each way to see her almost every day. There was um, two days a week. I didn't. One day was when I went to therapy and one day was when I went to the in-person support group. Did her frontal temporal lobe dementia worsen during that time as well? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, I would get phone calls two o'clock in the morning um, on Skype and from the nurse because they couldn't figure out why she was panicked or her heart her pulse rate was 180 and it wouldn't come down and they'd given her all the meds and it had been an hour and she's in full panic mode and so they would put her phone on a stand in front of her so that I could read her lips Mm -hmm. and I would have to tell them at two o'clock in the morning and and I remember clearly one time her saying, I'm drowning, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And they said, we've been suctioning her. She's fine. I said, what's on the TV? They said, it's just the meditation channel. I said, what's on the TV? 
oh, it's just waves coming on from the ocean. I'm like, she can no longer tell the difference between reality and the television. I said, you need to change the channel. I mean, it was as simple, as soon as they changed the channel, her pulse rate came down, the anxiety started to go. I mean, it was just the disconnect with that's so sad that she was so fear you know fearful like that she was and they of course didn't know they thought it was relaxing right um and if you don't mind if we could take a second because again if there are people who are listening and new to the als world or not a part of our world can you explain what frontal temporal lobe dementia is because i don't want people to think dementia like an old person this is something that some als patients get but could you tell a little bit about that Yeah, so it is a dementia that affects the frontal lobe of the brain, which is executive functioning. So that is where uh, we differentiate reality from what's imaginary. Uh, It's where we, and that can be a television screen or it can be so-and-so was pinching me. Ah. Where it could have been the chair pinching her. She may have thought it was the nurse pinching her. Does it, it affect could, moods, yeah. moods too, or no? Um, it, it, it progresses fairly quickly. Um, it got to the point where she no longer knew who I was most days. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I that. would get, I would get to visit her. And if she did recognize me, she would say things like she would start crying and I'd say, what's wrong. And she, of course, I'm reading her lips the whole time. She would say, they won't let me get up and use the bathroom. And I'd say, Mary, you can't walk. Well, why? Well, because you have ALS. What? And I would have to re-explain to her, and this happened several times, um, that she totally lost concept of, of what was wrong with her. And I finally went to the neurologist and said, can you please go see her in the hospital? I think she has FTD. And she's like, well, okay. She always seems like she's on top of it when I'm there, but okay. So I made sure I was there at the same time. And she did the usual questions. Do you know where you are? Do you know what day it is? Do you know who the president is? Um, You know, all those questions. And she answered them all correctly. And the neurologist looks at me like I'm crazy. And I said, and I said, hold on. I said, Mary, why are you in the hospital? And her response was questioning drug overdose. (laughs) And that's when the neurologist went, oh, Oh, shit. (laughs) And sure enough, there went the FTD diagnosis. And I took power of attorney because at that point, she no longer was able to make her own decisions. Um, I had already gone when she went back to the hospital permanently, I had gone on um, intermittent FMLA so that I could take time off without losing my job. Um, Even if it was without pay, I could, I could do what I needed to do to be with her. Um, That was, I believe the end of May of 2015. So at that point, and then marriage was legalized in June, of course. So that's why we were never able to legally get married because she no longer had legal authority to make any of her own decisions. Um, The other thing I had to do before before triggering the power of attorney, because she had not made anything known about her plans or her wishes, Mm. 
I called an attorney to find out, because we weren't legally married, how I can claim her remains when it's time. And so I had to get a special form. Um, and I had four friends come in. I filmed it. They were witnesses. They were also all sign language interpreters like me who were very good at reading lips. They were all friends of hers. And so they read her the document. She agreed to it. She agreed to who was back up to me. She, you know, went through all of it and we had it on film so that there would be no question when it came time. But I had to do all of that before I took power of attorney. Okay. Otherwise, you know, a, an estranged family member could well have swooped in. Well, that's where I was, was going to ask. Thing she wanted. Where was her family in Ireland or? No, um, her mother had passed when she was nine. Uh, she always thought it was from multiple sclerosis, but when she called her brother to say she had ALS, he said, you know, dad and I always thought that's what mom had, but oh. they had never told her. So it could have been familial. We will oh, never yeah. know. Yeah. Um, but her brother was of a religious group that is very conservative was not um, open, welcoming, or affirming of us as lesbians mm -hmm. um, and as people who weren't members of their religious group. Also, he would come down to visit he and his wife probably once a month while she was in the hospital. She was adamant that I had to be there. She was terrified that they would baptize her against her will, which is not unheard of, unfortunately, with that. Did religion. she know them, though? Was she, did she? She had not really spoken with her brother since they were teenagers. They had, they had off and on about her dad's care. Her dad passed in 2009. He had had Alzheimer's. Okay. And so it was just she and her brother left, but they really did not have a good relationship. So mm. she didn't trust to be alone with them, um, which was hard also. And uh, when it came eventually time to take her off the ventilator, I couldn't tell him ahead of time either because she didn't want him there. Mm, gotcha, gotcha. So you had to make that decision. She didn't just did. die. You had to make the decision to turn it off. What led to that finality there? Um, take your time. She... Her body became colonized by bacteria. Mm -hmm. There was nonstop infections. And every infection, of course, causes more deterioration with the brain, with AL the ALS symptoms. Initially in the hospital, she could move um, one foot. So we had a foot pedal that she could use to alert the nurses um, by this time, she had one finger she could barely move. I had found this very sensitive sensor that you could tape on the finger. And we hooked it up to the nurse alarm, the call button. She was right across from the nurse's station. Mm -hmm. um, but she was starting to lose control of that finger as well. Um, but it was, it was the infections nonstop and the continued hallucinations she was having. Mm -hmm. But the one direction she had ever given me was that if she could no longer experience joy, then she wanted to go. Yeah. 
I get that. That's kind of where we were on our side too. I totally understand that. And that would have been the correct decision, just like that awful decision I had to make at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So it was probably the end of September when I finally met with the doctor and said, we need, I said, we need to make a plan. Mm -hmm. And we decided on October 31st, um, for us, it's a spiritual, Mary yeah. and I, part of our spiritual tradition. It's when uh, the gateway to the other world opens and it makes for easier crossing to the other side. And so that also gave me time to bring um, pe support people up for me because we had moved up here with just the two of us mm -hmm. from California. And um <clears throat> Over the months leading up to that, I had kept telling her, you know, Mary, when you're done, you just need to let me know. I said, but because I'm reading your lips, I need you to do it when a doctor and a nurse are also in the room. Mm -hmm. So two weeks later, I happen to be in the room. The hospitalist comes in who had been working with her quite a bit and her favorite nurse comes in and we're standing around her bed. And she looked at me and I said, do you want to say something, Mary? She said, yes, it's time to die. So she waited until I had those witnesses I had requested. And um, so this was two weeks after I had made the decision. So it was two weeks before Halloween. And um, I said, did you say that you're ready to die? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, when? And she said, now. And I said, no. I said, no, I said, I need two weeks. I need, I need the kids to come up. I need my parents here and I need Diana and Kat to come up. Mm -hmm. So how about Halloween? And she got this big grin on her face and she said, okay. So she, even though she had that frontotemporal lobe dementia, she was still able to at least be there in that moment to that understand moment. what was going on. And that lifted such a weight off my shoulders. Mm -hmm. Huge. I mean, what a gift she gave me. Good. Because I was really struggling with the decision, even though I knew it was the right one. Right. So it did get time. Um, I flew up my two older children. Um, well, my oldest flew in from New York. Um, my parents drove up. My son drove up. My youngest wanted to come up. But when she had been to visit Mary over the summer, she had gone into a catatonic state herself oh, and wow. so I told her it was best not to be there mm -hmm. I said just I know you really want to and I know Mary knows that you want to be there but I think for your health your mental health that's probably not a good decision right so she made sure she was with her own support team that day and then um, my two best friends for the last 25 years Diana and Kat flew up um, to be with us too and so um, the day before Halloween, everybody arrived except my son, who was still driving, and we went to see her. She got a big grin on her face. She goes, is it time? I said, no, not today. Today's just for visiting. Tomorrow will be the day. And she's like, okay. So, you know, everybody got to spend some time with her and not too long. And um, then the next morning, Saturday morning, October 31st, we all went back over there Um a member of our spiritual community from England had written a special ritual for her. Okay. And so we did this ritual with her as, um, as they were preparing to remove the trach. And um, 
she was very, um, she was, I would say glowing at the point. She was very happy. She was definitely done. Mm -hmm. um, and it probably took five minutes max from the time they took the ventilator off until she was gone. Um, fortunately, Oregon is a um, right to die state. Mm -hmm. So they were able to give her as much medication as necessary to keep her comfortable and to keep her um, transition as smooth as possible. Well, that's, it was real smooth for me, but it was for her. I'm sure. But it sounds like as hard as it was for you, it sounds like you handled it well. It sounds like she got a chance to say goodbye to important people. They had a chance to say goodbye to her. You yeah. had that chance and she was ultimately ready to go. And I she think was. that's super important. Even though my husband's was a not a good ending the way it went out, he was ready to go. And, you know, you said colonized. I, I've never used that term, but I have a feeling he was like that because he had had one infection after the other for several months. And in pictures that come up on Facebook memories, I can see the flushing of his skin. I thought, wow, he really had been dying for a few months before we even got to the end. She had um, had Marsa a couple times. She had had a huge open stage three bed sore at the back of her head. Oh, I wow. Mean, it was just, there was just, there so was just much. Much, so yeah. much that it just. Yeah, it was just time, it even was, though it was hard. And, and I'm very grateful to her for having those moments of clarity to say that she was ready. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. And Bill had that too, before he finally just went unconscious for the most part and couldn't, and never communicated with us again. But um, I know that was really hard for you to share. Uh, it's hard to revisit, especially those ends, but I appreciate it. I know that the things you've shared are going to be a blessing to others. If no, if for no other reason, then those who are going through it know that they're not alone, that, that we've been through it and that, that they have people they can reach out to. So we'll go ahead and close out this episode. And I would like to invite everyone to listen to Denise's next episode, which will come out in two weeks. And she's going to talk about life after the passing of her beloved Mary. And we're going to find out what she's been doing since that time and, and maybe give you some pointers on how to survive after taking care of a loved one with ALS or any type terminal illness. So Denise, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks everyone. We'll see you in two weeks.